So my name's Grant. I'm one of the pastors or elders here at Restored Uptown. And we have been in a series called About That Life, working through the Sermon on the Mount, working through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is really Jesus' greatest sermon of all time, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And we've been going through that over the last couple of weeks and months now. And we've covered quite a lot of ground if you've been with us that whole time. And over the next few weeks, we're going to get into some big topics. So next week, we're going to be looking at lust and the heart. The week after that, we're going to be looking at divorce. The week after that, we're going to look at singleness and a few other issues. And really, we're doing a mini-series within the biggest series called the Sermon on the Mount around sexuality and relationships, which is so big and important for us as people trying to follow Jesus today. And with that in mind, this morning, I'm going to do a bit of a foundational sermon called A Vision for Sexuality. So really, in a sense, this is the Sermon on the Mount sex talk today. And I said that at the back, and I huddled before the service started, and everyone laughed like, haha. But really, we're going to do a bit of a Sermon on the Mount sex talk today and get into it together. Um, and I don't know if you had that growing up. I don't know if anyone ever gave you the talk. I thought I could tell you, okay, got one or two heads nodded. No, I never had that. I know in my home, in the Clark household, it never happened. Uh, I remember my mom very clearly passive-aggressively kind of nudging my dad, like, Charles, when are you going to have that chat with Grant? Like, it's time. You need to talk to Grant about sexuality. And my dad had been sent to a boarding school in England when he was really young. I don't think he ever had the talk. So he just never did it. He just kind of rebuffed my mom's comments. And what my parents did is they just gave me a book. They gave me a book. Ryan's in the same boat. Anyone else just given a book? Okay, Shell, my wife. Maybe that explains something or not. But it was a book called What Every Boy Should Know, which sounds like the magic bullet, What Every Boy Should Know. It was a book on sexuality, puberty, adolescence, relationships, sex, how it all worked. Of course, I was like a 10 or 11-year-old boy at the time, so I didn't read it. And I missed out on all of the boyhood wisdom that I was meant to get from that book. But I was thinking about it like while I was reflecting for today's sermon. I don't know about your family of origin, for me and my family, I think the message that I got, whether that was like explicit or implicitly, was that sex is awkward and sex is a bit uncomfortable and sex is a bit taboo. So we're not going to talk about that as a family. Not because it's not important, but because it's just uncomfortable. So we never did that talk in our home. Instead, I remember, I guess, learning about sex from my f like friends at school and from TV and the things that I watched. And then I remember as an 11-year-old, the sex talk at school, I don't know if any of you guys had that. Okay, Ryan had that too. Oh, everyone had that talk. No one had the talk at home, it seems. Everyone had the talk at school. But I remember I was 11. We were in grade six. We went into like the special room, our whole class, boys and girls with Miss Koenig, and she had the talk with us. Anyone know Miss Koenig? Did she do your talk? <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe Miss Koenig was like jetting around doing this talk for all the schools. But Miss Koenig, I don't remember a thing about what she said. I think by the time I was 11, I knew kind of the content. I knew the logistics of sex and how it all worked. But Miss Koenig did this talk with us. And the moment I remember is this. There was a boy in our class in the Q&A time who put up his hand and he wanted to rattle her. He wanted to ask her an uncomfortable question which would kind of embarrass her in front of the class and make us all laugh. So he asked her a question on oral sex. And Miss Koenig didn't skip a beat. She like looked him in the eyes, steely-eyed, just like steel in her veins, you know? And she just responded without any visible signs of anxiety or awkwardness or discomfort. And she answered his question briefly, logistically, biologically, and told him the answer to his question about oral sex. 
he didn't get the laughs he was looking for. Except from me. I was 11 at the time, and this was awkward and uncomfortable, so I laughed, and you should read giggled, because I was 11 at the time. I like, hee hee, got really uncomfortable with what was going on. And then laughing in that moment, I felt so embarrassed, so I turned to my friend behind me and tried to blame him. Like, I turned in disgust, like, how can you laugh at this? We're 11 years old, man, it's just sex, be cool. That was like the vibe I was going for. And at the same time as all of these things were going on in our class, Davina Nika faints. And I don't know if this is a blood sugar thing or if this is like a health thing or a food thing, but Davina just faints. So I'm feeling really awkward and uncomfortable, so I giggle. This boy, Kurt, is trying to embarrass the teacher, so he asks like an edgy question. And Davina, who I just think is too pure of heart for this conversation and what's going on, she just passes out and needs to be carried out, you know? I don't know what your experience is with sex and sexuality. If you had the talk growing up or who gave you the talk or what you were told or what you learned. But this morning what we're going to do is get into Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about sex and sexuality. I think one of the things that's been a real joy for me 25 years on after having that sex talk in grade 6, and that's a scary sentence to say, 25 years later. uh, I was chatting to Natalie and Eddie about that earlier. Just time goes quick but is that I'm chatting to my friends now who are having that talk with their kids. I mean, August, my daughter, is two and a half years old, so we're not at that place yet, but some of my friends are, and they're starting to have those conversations with their sons and daughters, and they're doing it in a much better way than I experienced when I was a kid. Um, They're leading this conversation. They're setting the tone on it. They are having the first conversation, like a really foundational conversation with their kids about sex and sexuality in an age-appropriate way. And I've loved hearing the different like, responses the kids have had. Um, the one parent I spoke to said that his son looked at him and said, are you and mom still doing this? <laughs> like, <laughs> like horrified. Like being an adult sounds like a nightmare that you have to do this thing. Um, another friend of mine a few weeks ago, he just had the chat with his son like a week or two before. And he said to me, six months before that, he'd asked his son, do you know what sex is? His son said, no, never heard of that before. Six months on, he said, do you know what sex is? And his son said, no, but the boys at school are talking about it, you know. They're speaking about it at the playground. So he got this really great syllabus, really great content, and sat down with them, and they started to go through it together. And his son felt kind of proud, you know. My dad has sat with me and explained this thing to me that is a big deal. You know, I don't fully understand it. I don't know what it's all about but my parents are trusting me with this. They're respecting me. I'm growing up there. They're allowing me to mature. And he felt really, really proud that something his friends didn't know about yet that his dad was sitting and teaching him about. One of my other friends, I think you might have heard the story before, had this conversation with his son. And afterwards, his son said, Dad, you know what? I want to have this conversation with my son one day. He'd been so touched by it. It was such a beautiful father-son moment that he said, I can't wait till I get to do this. And today what we're going to do is look at Jesus' words as something of a Christian foundation and vision for sexuality and see what he has to say about these important topics. So if you've got a Bible, you can go to Matthew 5 verse 27, otherwise it's going to pop up on the screen here. But these are Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now next week, our plan is we're going to work through that whole passage and look at everything that it's saying there about lust in the heart. But today I want to focus in on just two things that Jesus said in verse 27 and 28. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. It's something that's come up quite a few times in our preaching in this series so far. And I really want to ask you one question, which is going to be kind of an overarching idea for this message. And it's this. Who or what has most influenced and shaped your worldview about sex and sexuality? Can you think about that for a second? Who or what has most influenced and shaped and formed your worldview about sex and sexuality? And was that Jesus or someone else or somewhere else? When we come to the Sermon on the Mount, something we might not have said yet, but maybe has seemed obvious to some of you, is that Jesus' audience is primarily Jewish. So these were people who would have grown up in a very Jewish culture and in very Jewish homes where they would have been shaped by the Old Testament scriptures. They would have been shaped by the Hebrew scriptures and its vision and teaching around sexuality. So that was normal and formative for them. That, that is what they'd grown up with and agreed with. It's kind of similar to maybe many people in San Diego today being shaped by the media when it comes to sexuality. Whether that is social media, whether that's TV or pornography or popular movies, but all these things are shaping the ethic and vision that people have of sexuality today. I don't know what your streaming service is, whether it's Netflix or Hulu or something else, but those things are all discipling the sexual imagination of our generation, just like the Old Testament scriptures did with the Jewish people in Jesus' day. But to this Jewish audience who've been shaped so much by the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus speaks to them and he says, you have heard that it was said. And he points them back to the Ten Commandments and to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And he says to them, do not commit adultery. It's the seventh commandment that they would have known well. This is something that probably the young Jewish boys and girls would have been taught when they were young and would have decided on, you know, I'm going to wait till I get married to sleep with my wife or husband. And then after they got married, they would continue to live by that ethic saying, I want to be faithful to my wife or husband for the rest of my life. That was what they were shaped by. That was the view that they held. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. And they said, of course, that's what we've been taught. And then he says to them, but I tell you, and I want to, there's a big distinction here. In our culture today, there are a lot of Christian celebrities, pastors, ex-pastors, ex-evangelicals, whatever you want to call them, people who have been in the church who now have blogs and podcasts where they are sharing views on sexuality. And they are saying things like, you have heard that it was said, and reading verses from the Bible, and then saying, but I tell you, and giving a completely different sexual ethic or vision. Is completely disconnected from the scriptures and completely disconnected from millennia of Christian teaching and tradition and practice when it comes to sexuality. So what Jesus is doing here is not that. When he says, but I tell you, what he's doing is he is elevating his word to the same authority as the scriptures and the Ten Commandments, but he's not dismissing or disconnecting the faith from the scriptures. What he's doing is he's actually taking the scriptures deeper deeper underneath our skin and applying it to our hearts. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit more next week. But Jesus says to his audience, and he says to us today, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. 
Now, obviously, Jesus's audience um, for the Sermon on the Mount would be different to us today. You know, that was a predominantly Jewish audience. That is not who is inside this room today. And some of us have grown up in the church, being shaped by different teaching on sexuality. Some of us have grown up outside of the church, never really hearing, you know, a Christian ethos around sexuality or being shaped by a secular view of sexuality. And Jesus speaks into our context today in this room, saying, you've heard it said, wherever you come from, there's been some view, some vision, some ethic around sexuality that has shaped you. But I tell you, I want to show you what my good way is, the the way of following me. And he affirms what can be affirmed in those other ways. And he rejects the things that need to be rejected in those other ways. And then he shows us what it looks like to follow him. I think some of you here today grew up in the church. I've been in church since I was 12. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I did join church through a youth group when I was 12. And I was part of what now is kind of negatively called purity culture. Anyone know a little bit about that? Yeah, lots of hands going up. Okay, some of you have experienced that. I went through a period in church life where things that were taught from the pulpit or at least in youth group was more shaped by books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Anyone know that book? Than really what the scriptures said. Other content like that, other books and messages like that. And these are some of the messages I received. I think most of them translate. Maybe you've got some other ones that come to your mind. But some of the things that I heard that were more cultural than biblical were things like this. Dating is bad, but courting is good, whatever that distinction is. Kissing before marriage is a sin. Breaking up with someone is practicing divorce. That your virginity is the most important thing that you give to someone when you get married. For a lot of young men, I think what happened is you would go into these like youth breakaways or small like men's groups at like a youth camp or on a Friday night or on a Sunday or something. And you would just speak about sexual purity. You know, that was like the main thing. You wanted to follow Jesus. You wanted to serve him and give your life for him. And then all that was spoken about was sexual purity. Like that was all that there was to following Jesus. Nothing else about radically serving him and living for him in this world. It was just like, don't do these things. Make sure you do these things and then you're all good. And I've spoken to a lot of young women who are in churches like this and environments like this, and they were basically told a really horrible message. Boys are really, they've got a strong sexual drive, their engine is on, and they're visually stimulated. So cover up and hold them at bay, which is a terrible message to tell young girls. You know why? Because it's saying boys are not self-controlled, so you need to be. And then some of these young women who over time started to date and then experienced their own strong sexual urges and desires were confused and felt shame and guilt because they'd been told only guys experience those things. You shouldn't experience that. And they were confused about what they were going through because they had not heard about this in the church. And I'm sure a lot of those messages were well-intentioned. I'm sure a lot of those sermons and resources were created to help people follow Jesus and to live with sexual purity and avoid the pain of sexual sin. And also in our increasingly sexualized culture to try and not be shaped by that, but to be shaped by the way of Jesus. But these teachings led to a lot of guilt and shame and legalism and to confusion with people. Am I justified? Am I right before God because of my sexual purity? Or am I justified? Am I right before God because of what Jesus has done? the life he has lived, the death he has died on the cross. Which is it? It became confusing for people. And I think what happened is some of these people started to get a little bit older. Maybe you, definitely me. 
what happened is we wrestled with this, realizing some of what we were taught was more cultural than it was scriptural. What people started to do was throw out the entire biblical sex ethic, just saying, well, if all of this that I was taught was wrong, I'm just going to throw it away and find my own way. And for some people, they even threw out the faith. So I've been too hurt by this. I'm just going to do my own thing. On the other hand, maybe that is so foreign to you. Maybe you grew up outside of the church and you didn't know that in the church there were like these sexual mistakes or, or teaching that was filled with shame and guilt and legalism. Maybe for you, your framework was entirely shaped by the culture around you and not at all by the Bible. Um, Nancy Piercy in her book, uh, Love Thy Body, speaks about and clarifies a version of this view. Maybe you'll agree with it, maybe not. But she says, a video put out by Children's Television Workshop, widely used in sex education classes, defines sexual relations as simply something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. And she highlights here the difference between this view and a biblical view, where there's no mention of marriage or family or even love or commitment, no hint that sex has a richer purpose than sheer sexual gratification. And this vision or this view that Piercy is speaking about is the dominant view of sexuality in the shows that we watch on TV, in the media we consume, in the movies we watch. It's the air that we breathe in San Diego in 2022. And what she's trying to highlight is that is the predominant view in our culture, but it's very different to the Bible's view of sex and sexuality. And she highlights some of the differences. This view of sexuality is disconnected from marriage. It's disconnected from childbearing and family. It's disconnected from male and female relationships, and it's disconnected from love and emotion and commitment. And Jesus says to those of us who've grown up in this kind of environment, you have heard that it was said. This is what you were taught. This is what you were shaped by. This is what you experienced. And whatever you believe about sexuality today, whatever your experience has been growing up, every single one of us come into this room today with some kind of foundation and some kind of vision of sex and sexuality. What is right and wrong? What is best for us? What, what is the good life that Maria spoke about a while ago look like? What is that? And the question I want to ask you again, that I want to put in front of you again, is who or what is it that has most shaped your view of sex and sexuality? What has shaped your foundation, your framework, your worldview? And is it Jesus or is it something else? A little bit later in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 19, Jesus has another conversation about this. Some people come to him and they ask him some questions about marriage and divorce and relationships and sex. And he gets into it in a big way. And he says this, quoting back to Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden and creation. He says in Matthew 19 verse 4 to 6, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now in three verses of scripture there, we have got some really huge key foundational teaching around sex and sexuality. And it starts in Matthew 19 verse four with these three words, haven't you read? And that leapt off the page at me. And that's so important for us in this conversation. Jesus in the conversation on sexuality goes back to scripture. What is your view on this, Jesus? Well, haven't you read 
Don't you know what the scriptures say about that? And for us as disciples, the series we're in is a series about discipleship and following Jesus. For every issue, the question is, haven't you read? What does the scriptures say about that? What, what has God said? What, what has he taught us about that? And what does it look like for us to follow and obey? For disciples, for Christians, Scripture is the starting point for us on all of these things. And as much as we might like dislike the word, Scripture has an authority to it. And we are called to submit and yield our lives to it, like Andy said a few weeks ago when he spoke about the word. But for most people today, and for a lot of Christians, Christians in church, Christians outside of church, actually Scripture has less and less authority and the authority of culture is growing. Culture is shaping us more and more than the word is. But surely culture cannot be our authority on these things. Culture is constantly changing. I don't know, if you think back 10 or 15 years, some of the views in culture and how they've changed over the last decade or decade and a half. And as we look ahead and we think in 10 or 15 years where we will be, surely culture cannot be our authority and shaping us around these things. Surely we need to come back to God's word, which is unchanging and true. Jesus in this conversation starts saying, haven't you read? And then he carries on in verse four and says, he who created them. And I love that he brings us back to creation, to the beginning, to God with the first man and woman, the first marriage, the first sexual act. He brings them back to the beginning and he talks about creation. I read a book a while ago. It's really long. It's pretty hard, but you, you might have heard of it. You might have read it. You might enjoy it. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. In that book, he has this idea, which I think is so helpful when Jesus speaks about creation. He says there's two ways of viewing creation and two ways of viewing how we live, mimesis and poiesis. For those of you who are into Greek and philosophy, you'll love this kind of thing. If not, we'll just skip through it quickly. But the mimetic view would be the view that we hold to as Christians. It's a view that God has made everything, that everything has a design and an order and a way to it. And as Christians, what we're trying to do is live in line with that view. We're trying to live in line with God's creation and design. We don't want to go against the grain of the way God has made the world. We want to flow with it because that is best. We are trusting the architect of life and going along with his way. The other way, the way of poesis, is a contrast. Here we see everything as a raw material. Everything is a blank canvas. So our lives, meaning, identity, purpose, we can take ourselves, we can take what is around us and turn it into what we want. We can become anything or do anything or be anything. Which I think for most of us, we probably don't believe that's true. I um, grew up in South Africa, most of you know that. I was born in 1986, which means that when I was 10 years old, the Chicago Bulls were crushing it in the NBA. Um, I watched it on TV. I really enjoyed watching The Last Dance during lockdown and just reliving the golden age of basketball. But I was watching basketball on TV. I was collecting basketball cards. I was into it, even though I lived about as far away as you can from San Diego. And I remember going outside. Now, listen, basketball's not a big thing in South Africa. So, I mean, Chris Flores has seen me on the basketball court. I'm not good. I've scored once since I've gotten here. Uh, it was a miraculous three-pointer. From It was really beautiful, but it was a surprise. <laughs> but I thought, if I practice 10 or 15 minutes a day, I'm going to get really, really good. And I thought to myself, watching these guys on TV, I want to go pro. Like, I want to be like Jordan, you know? I want to be a professional basketball player. And my mom, bless her heart, such an encourager, she used to say, Grant, you've got it, man. 
all your cousins are over six foot, you, you're going to grow. You're going to be there. Now, listen, if you don't know Michael Jordan's story, he was short, guys. He was short until he hit college. And then I think he was praying at night. He sprang up. He hit six foot six and all of a sudden was a beast. I had that vision in my mind. It's like, it's fine. It's not how you start. It's how you finish that matters. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to spring up. I'm going to be six foot something. I could be the greatest of all time. My mom lied to me. I, I met all my cousins a few years later, and none of them are taller than me. They're all really, really... I, I mean, if you're short too, you know, it's, it is what it is. But I think I'm 5'8 with heels on, and <laughs> I'm never going to be a pro basketball player. And I think what I'm trying to say is, even if I worked harder than I've ever worked at something, I would be going against my design to try and be an NBA pro or at least to be as good as Jordan. It's just not the way I'm wired. Andy's taught me this phrase, I'm an indoor cat, you know? I'm an indoorsman, an avid indoorsman. <laughs> I'm not made for the great outdoors, you know? I'm meant to be inside. The world of professional sport is not what God has designed me for and called me to. And for some of you today, you feel the same thing. You realize you've been designed in a certain way by God and not designed in a certain way. And what we see in the scriptures here is that Jesus has designed the human body He's designed marriage, and he's designed sex, which means that in the Garden of Eden, the first time Adam and Eve came together and made love, God was not surprised. <laughs> I think some of you grew up in churches where you thought God was. God wasn't like going red and just shocked, like, what are they doing? Where did this idea get into their heads? I, like calling the angels, guys, this is a nightmare. Look what's happening on earth. God designed Adam and Eve in a certain way. He designed their bodies and their desires in a certain way. He brought them together in marriage. He designed them to have sex because sex is a good thing. Sadly, the stereotype that I've experienced, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, the stereotype in the church is that often sex is viewed as dirty and a bit gross. And the joke is, so you should save it for the one you love the most, you know? But that was the view I kind of grew up with in the church. Sex is a bit dirty, it's a, it's a bit gross, save it for marriage, that's the point of it. But what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, the first two pages of the Bible, is sex is spoken about, and it's spoken about in a positive way, and it's celebrated and encouraged by God. Sex is not a dirty or gross thing, it's a beautiful thing that God has designed us for within marriage. And this is the third thing Jesus says in Matthew 19. God has designed and defined sex and marriage. Matthew 19, verse 5, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now again, Jesus is referring back to Genesis chapter 2 in the beginning. He's quoting Genesis 1 and 2 here. And he's telling us a few things about sex which just don't line up with the modern secular view of sex and sexuality. He's saying to us that marriage is between a man and a woman, that sex and living together come after marriage, not before. He's telling us that sex and marriage are designed for only two people, not more or less, and that marriage is designed to be a lifelong commitment, that it's designed by God in the ups and downs of life for us to show love and commitment and service and sacrifice to one another, just like God does to us as people. And I realized that sharing some of that this morning, some of you are 100% on the same page with me, um, you've studied the scriptures on this, you've grown up being taught this, maybe you've struggled with this in the past, but you've come to say, I believe this is what the Bible says and I hold to this view. I think some of you this morning are maybe a bit surprised by this. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, you're excited about him in the church, but you've never had a church sex talk before. 
and I'm sharing this today and you're going, I didn't even know this was in the Bible. You know, I didn't know this is what Christians believed about sex. This is new to me. Maybe for some of you, you're even dismissing me today going, well, of course he's going to say that, but that's pretty old-fashioned and outdated, you know, and you're, you're switching off to what I'm saying. But maybe some of you this morning even view what I'm saying today as dangerous. Actually, Grant, what you're saying today is so hurtful to people, to people's freedom, to people's self-expression, to people being true to themselves. How can you say those things and share those things? It goes so against the grain of our culture and world. Please stay with me as we finish up the message today. This week, Andy and I, we were kind of working through the sermon and just talking about this topic a little bit. And he told me about an advert that I'd never seen before. I'm hoping you have. Has anyone seen the Snickers swap advert? This is, okay, we've got commercial. I'm so sorry. (laughs) We've got maybe four hands. I'm counting around the room, maybe four or five. You should go and Google this afterwards. It's really hilarious, guys. I've watched it about six times this week. So it's... No, no, no. Come on, Parker. You're on, a com- you're on the wrong wavelength here, dude. I'll, let me tell you about this advert. I think you need to know. The gist of it is game night is going on. There's two couples on two couches. There's a board between them. I don't know what the game is. Maybe you would recognize it. But they're sitting and they're playing this game. And the one lady looks over to the other couple and she says, do you guys want to do a swap? And it's kind of like a casual environment. And the lady on the other couch looks a bit awkward and uncomfortable. And then she kind of like... She gets like a bit of a naughty look in her eye, a little smile. And she goes, yeah, I could be into that. Like, what are we talking about? Like, just a one-time casual thing between Tyler and I or what? And the other lady just goes cold and goes, no, I was talking about switching teams. (laughs) Didn't drop, didn't land at all. Maybe you need to see this advert. It's an amazing moment (laughs) where the one lady completely mistakes what she's saying and it creates such an awkward rift between them at this game now. Go and watch it. But I wanted to say that, and Andy shared that with me, because it's just so wild that a Snickers ad selling chocolate during daytime TV is joking about casual sex and swinging. That's kind of, imagine that pitch meeting. Okay, what are we going to do for this new Snickers ad? I've got it. <laughs> have, you talked, have you thought about swinging before? What have we done for the last few ads? And they go, yeah, this is the one. This is the way to go forward. And that's just the air that we breathe living in San Diego in 2022. We, we live in a very sexualized culture. And I want to share that because one of the mistakes we can make as we come to this topic, as we look at the scriptures and we look at Jesus's words and Paul's words, and as you hear what I'm saying today, is we can say, but Grant, this was written so long ago to a culture so different from ours. They didn't even have TV. <laughs> Their view of sexuality was so outdated and repressed and old fashioned. We've moved past that. But that's just not the truth. Tim Keller summarizes the sexual ethic of the first century Roman Empire like this, saying, In the Roman world, sex was merely an appetite. Its purpose was to serve the social order. Married women could not have sex with anyone but their husbands. But men, even married ones, could have sex with any male or female they wanted as long as it was with someone of less honor and class. The gist of it in the first century Roman Empire or culture was that adultery, prostitution, pederasty or pedophilia, homosexuality and orgies were the norm. These were not uncommon things going going on in culture, which means that the Snickers ads in Jesus' day would have been wild. That's the point I'm trying to make. (laughs) And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes to an urban church. He writes to a church in a really progressive 
sexualized city. And he speaks to them about what it looks like to follow Jesus rather than be shaped by the Corinthian norms. In fact, in Corinth at the time, to be called a Corinthian was slang for being a prostitute. That's how sexualized this culture and city and environment was. And Paul speaks to them because even sexuality in the church at the time was wild. There were people from outside the church looking into the church and saying, what's going on there is just crazy. Like, you guys have to do something about that. And Paul writes to them to help them see Jesus' vision and design for sex so they know how to respond because Corinth is shaping the church more strongly than Jesus and his word. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says, the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. He starts with this view of sexuality, which would have been really common in Corinthian culture. He says, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. And he's saying what uh, Tim Keller was saying about the Roman culture, that sex was seen as just an appetite, just like in our day. You know, when the body is hungry, we feed it. When we feel aroused, when we feel in the mood, we find someone to have sex with. That's what was going on in first century Corinth. And that view, sex is just physical or biological. It's just two consenting adults having fun, enjoying one another, and satisfying one another. But what we see is that as Paul carries on from that Corinthian term, he shows us that in the Christian view, there's such a high and respected view of sexuality. It's so valued and seen as such a beautiful thing that that view of sexuality is just seen as so cheap. He's speaking about something else, that it's been designed by God to unite two people together and make them one. And he's saying to us, actually, this shouldn't be cheapened and devalued in the way that you say, sex is just like going to a drive-thru and picking up a burger. I'm hungry, I want to eat. I'm aroused, I want to find someone to sleep with. No, sex is much more than that. Tim Keller, um, in a quote on this says, the Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you're willing to unite with that person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. The big idea here is that sex is about bonding two people together and uniting them together permanently. That's part of the biblical vision of sexuality. And that's why Paul compares this view with the idea of going to see a prostitute. It's a completely different thing. When you go to see a prostitute, it's a transaction. Now, I give you money and you give me sexual satisfaction. We're not trying to build a relationship here. This is not a long-term thing here. This is a one-off and then we're done. Or maybe I'll come and see you again next week when my urge arises again. And Paul is saying here, you can't do that. Or at least you shouldn't. 
He's saying it's not wise and it's not good for us. He's saying that when you think this way about sex, when you act this way with sex, you hurt yourself and you hurt the other person and cause pain. Sex, whether there is love or feelings or emotion or marriage involved, has been designed by God as a powerful, physical, emotional, and existential adhesive for the soul. Which means that having sex with someone you aren't committed to in marriage is dangerous because you're making a covenant with your bodies that the rest of you isn't ready for. Genesis 2 says when you have sex with someone, you bond yourself together with them. Which means that casual sex is an oxymoron. It just can't be. Those things don't go together. Sex with no strings attached doesn't exist because sex is designed to attach strings. It's designed to bind people together and make them one and connect them. And that is why Paul and Jesus are saying sex should only exist within marriage, not to spoil our fun, not to limit our freedom, but because of sex's power and design. The scriptures are saying that sex has been designed by God for lifelong couple making. And when we don't treat it this way, it hurts us. And that's why sex can be both an incredibly good and beautiful and fun and wonderful thing and why it can be so hurtful and damaging and destructive because of its design. So what does Paul say in light of all of this? What is his advice to us? He says, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. What do you flee? You flee a burning building. You flee a wild animal. You flee danger. You flee something that actually could take you out. And that's what Paul is saying to us here, flee sexual immorality. And I love this here. Paul's not actually speaking to us like sometimes our parents would, saying, just do what I say. Flee sexual immorality, just do what I say. He's not speaking to us like some of those sex ed kind of strategies where, I don't know if anyone's seen the movie Mean Girls. Yeah, I know Lindsay's a big fan. There's a scene in Mean Girls with Coach Carr where he's doing the sex ed class and he warns everyone. He says, don't have sex or you'll get pregnant and die. Now take condoms and leave because he knows the kids are going to do it anyway. That's a terrible strategy because it's fear-based. Don't do this because this will happen to you. That's not what Paul does here. And Paul also doesn't take a moral route and say, don't commit sexual immorality because it's wrong. He comes at it from a completely different angle. He says, why flee sexual immorality? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Every other sin. Paul's saying to us here that sexual immorality is a unique type of sin. It affects us and hurts us in a unique kind of way. And our world is preaching a message of sexual expression and freedom and, and liberality, but there is more sexual slavery and brokenness in our world than ever before. Paul is saying the opposite of what our culture says here. He's saying run from sexual immorality. Don't run to it. And the second reason he gives for this is because Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than sexual satisfaction. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13 he says, The body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In verse, 18, in verse 19 and 20 he says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. And what he's saying to us here is that the big idea of life is not sex or sexual satisfaction. It's union with God. 
the, the pleasure, the unity, the oneness, the connection that comes from sex is pointing us to a greater connection, a greater unity, a greater oneness, a greater union that all of us are designed for with God one day forever. So he says we shouldn't continue in sexual sin because our bodies are the temple of God. Our bodies were made for the Lord, not for these inferior things. So Paul says, glorify God with your body and your life and your sexuality. And he says one more thing. I'm going to end with this. In verse 11, Paul speaks to this community of people. And just before that, he's listed a whole bunch of different sins, and most of them are sexual sin. And then he ends by saying this, and such were some of you. Such were some of you, church in Corinth. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's speaking to a group of people like this who have sinned in every conceivable way. You know, if you looked around the church in Corinth on a Sunday, you looked at the different people in their gathering, they had done everything on Paul's list. They were normal Corinthian people before they met Jesus and started to follow him. And now they're sitting together in a room like this, serving Jesus, worshiping Jesus, living for Jesus, following Jesus. And they've left their old life behind and are starting a new life in him and with him. And Paul writes about the members of the church and says that they have been washed clean of their sin. No matter what they had done before, they've been washed clean. They've been washed clean of sin and shame and guilt. They've been washed clean of things that they have done and that have been done to them. And Jesus has made them new. And maybe this morning you relate to that and you think, I need to be washed clean. In a moment, we're going to ask Jesus to do that. That we would feel and experience the cleansing that comes from his blood. We're going to take the communion cup in just a moment and drink. And remember that Jesus' blood washes away our sin. The other thing Paul says is that you have been sanctified. And this means we've taken off the old way, the Corinthian way, the, the way that we knew before, and we've put on the new way of Jesus. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, more and more, we're becoming the kind of people that God has called us to be. We might not be there now, but we're becoming that kind of person by the grace of God and the empowering of His Spirit. And He says that you've been justified. And this is where I want to end. When God saw the Corinthian church gathered like this 2,000 years ago, he didn't see their sexual record. He didn't look over the crowd and say, oh, this, 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 this. That's not what he did. He looked at them or he looked at you or he looks at me in Christ and he sees us as made new. A new identity, not defined by our sexual history, not defined by what we've done, not defined by our past, but defined by Jesus. We're not defined by our sexual purity. We are defined by his perfect sexual purity. We have a new identity in him. Jesus has washed the slate clean. And for us today, I want to say, you have heard that it was said, but Jesus speaks to us this morning and says, but I tell you, and I don't know the way you need to respond this morning to this message, but I know Jesus is calling us to follow him in a very sexualized culture. And I know that Jesus's grace is enough for us to have a new start and a new life with him. For some of you here today, maybe as I'm sharing this, this is new to you or this is challenging to you, 
we've got some books up front that we would love to give to you as a gift. Um, some really helpful resources on this topic that you might want to read through or um, think through and then maybe discuss with myself or Andy or one of the other leaders in this church. Because we want to we fuss with these issues and we want to follow Jesus in every way as a church. But I also just wanted to pray for God's grace to wash over us now. If, you, if you're happy to close your eyes. I want to welcome you here, Holy Spirit. Firstly, to renew our minds as we live in a culture where daily we are bombarded with different messages. And I ask that you would renew our minds and that we would think the thoughts that you think and believe the things that you believe and that more and more we'd be becoming like you in our desires, in our thoughts, in our decisions, and in our feelings. And I ask you for your grace to just wash over us now. I just think of that Corinthian church washed, washed clean with a history where they had done it all, seen it all, experienced it all, been part of it all. I just pray for the washing of your grace, the washing of your blood over us right now. For those of us whose pasts are shaped and defined and broken by sexual sin, for those of us who today maybe are in this space and we're wrestling with our own struggles and temptations and sexual sin, I pray you would wash us clean and make us new. I pray we would feel your forgiveness, we would feel your grace, we would feel shame and guilt lift from us. Holy Spirit, if there's any way you are calling us to respond today, whether it's something we believe or something we're doing, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would prompt us. I pray you would lead us pray you would guide us. And I pray we would follow you in this area and submit to you in this area as we submit to you and follow you in every other one too. So Jesus, we thank you for your body broken on the cross for us. We thank you for your blood shed. We thank you that we are new creations in you. We thank you that we have a new story in you, a new future in you, a new identity in you. We thank you that we are not defined by our past, but we are defined by you. And as we come forward now to take the cup and to eat the bread, we celebrate the grace of God. And we pray that it would wash over us now in Jesus' name.